Hello and welcome to episode 42 of the Media Sport podcast series. I'm Brett Hutchins from Monash University in Nam, Australia. Nam being the name for the traditional lands of the Kulin Nation for thousands of years, which we now know as Melbourne. I'm joined by two guests for this episode, both senior lecturers in the Academy of Sport and Physical Activity at Sheffield Hallam University in the UK. They are Jim Cherrington, whose work explores how identity, bodies, knowledge and objects materialised in and through everyday life, and Jack Black, whose research focuses on race, racism and psychosis, among other topics. Jim and Jack enjoy a notably productive research relationship, and you can find their co-authored articles in journals such as Mobilities, Theory and Event, Environmental Philosophy and World Futures. Jack is also the Associate Editor of the International Journal of the Sociology of Leisure. I asked to interview Jim and Jack after coming across a copy of their excellent edited collection, Sport and Physical Activity in Catastrophic Environments, which was published by Routledge last year. It's a fascinating and ambitious collection that brings together a diverse group of contributors to consider the ability of individuals and communities to maintain healthy relationships with their surroundings before, during, and after catastrophic events through physical activity and sporting practices. Topics covered across the book's 13 chapters include skate parks in Jamaica and skateboarding on the West Bank in Palestine, former child soldiers in Africa, football fandom and climate change, mountain biking in the UK, sport development partnerships in Cameroon, and women's basketball and activism during the COVID-19 global pandemic, which of course continues in various ways. I was also struck by the title of the four sections that organise the chapters of the book, the end of capitalism, the end of the social, the end of nature, and the end of morality. We have much to talk about. Jim and Jack, congratulations on sport and physical activity in catastrophic environments, and thank you for joining me for the Media Sport Podcast Series. Thanks, Brett. It's a pleasure to be on the podcast. Thanks for, thanks for having us. Yes, hello, Brett. Yeah, thanks for that. Thank you for that lovely introduction. Oh, you're welcome. Now, you, you start the book by describing a really quite awful event in Darrington, Washington in the US in 2014. What happened in Darrington and how does it connect, I suppose, with the focus of the book and sport and physical activity? Yeah, so I'll take this one, Brett. A few years ago, I watched a video by a prominent mountain biking brand called Raceface, and they produced a series of four or five videos on mountain biking where a significant amount of focus was placed on the relationship and the complexities between nature and, of course, mountain biking. And one of these short edits that they did, which I would wholeheartedly recommend, was on the Darrington mudslide just outside of Washington in, in the States. And what happened uh, on the 22nd of March 2014 was was tragic. And it kind of, you know, uh, it, it really upset me. It made me. It made me think about the kinds of things that are going on in the world at the minute, how we might conceptualize and make sense of those. Uh, and perhaps... But more more poignantly, in terms of the focus of our book, of course, is is what sport and physical activity might be able to do to help in terms of offsetting trauma, helping people to cope and manage during difficult times and tragic times, and uh, also, which is fitting to the, the Darrington mudslide, is is to to, to help people reimagine the kinds of worlds we live in via you know collective endeavour and uh, and community spirit. So very briefly. On the 22nd of March 2014, there was a there was a kind of catastrophic mudslide that displaced something like 18 million tons of debris from a, a hillside, killing 43 
members of the Darrington community. Um, and obviously, members of the community were were just reeling from the catastrophe for quite some time. And 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 in the aftermath, it got me thinking about, you know, what that might mean for for members of that community, and again, how sport can help. And and what was really interesting was in in the aftermath, members of the community corralled together to build mountain bike trails because that was something they already had a culture of in the area. There were lots of people who were already mountain bikers and were keen to come together through that tragedy and, and build these trails as a way of symbolically and physically coping with that catastrophe. And, and what it did in the end was it helped them to not only to, to, to strengthen their sense of community, but it also helped them to develop a resource there that symbolically at least would allow people to, to remember those that were lost in the, in the catastrophe. It's a really, um, it's a really interesting way, way of starting the book. And it sort of helps the term catastrophic stand out in some ways. Now, in the introductory chapter, which you both, which you co-authored, you described the need for a shift from disaster to catastrophe. What does that shift involve and why does it matter? Yeah, thanks, Brett. That's a good question. And it's something that we wanted to sort of to get straight, really, at the start, which was one of the reasons why, obviously, why we included it in the introduction. But for us, there's there's some clear distinctions between how we approach catastrophe and disaster and also how we therefore define them. So for us, one of the major things that we can we can sort of pull out, first of all, is the idea that disasters can be prepared for. So this notion that a disaster is something that you can perhaps anticipate. For instance, you will take out holiday insurance in case of a disaster that happens on holiday. So in that sense, you know, for me, they always form part of Beck's risk society, which is something that I was always sort of quite critical about. I never really understood what Beck was getting at with that notion of a risk society, because to me, what it ended up doing was it ended up just making you better at living under, for me, late capitalism in the sense that you were just more adept, you were more flexible, you were more accustomed to living with risk. And, and really what you should do is you, sh you should change the society so the risk is minimised completely or or, there are, or you're not you're not looking at those types of risks anymore. So for us, that, that was a clear distinction there, because for us, catastrophes are a rupture where there's no return to the normal. So whereas disaster as I say, can be prepared for. Catastrophes are something far more catastrophic. And it was when we started thinking along those lines that we were able to pull out some quite interesting characteristics. Uh, one of the things we noticed about catastrophe was whereas they whereas they have this sort of there's no return to normal whereas they completely changed sort of the social political economic fabric it was the interrelationship between all those different factors which became particularly interesting and i think this was something that's come out particularly you know with covid19 covid19 wasn't just a, a world health issue it had all these wider ramifications not just sort of political social ones but also culturally um we are now doing this interview over zoom which where was zoom before covid19 Little things all interrelate. It had obviously massive impacts on sport as well. So that was one thing that we noticed about catastrophe. It draws together. It's far more holistic in that regard. And it also, one thing I've always found quite interesting, and one thing I've been quite interested in when we've looked at uh, issues of sort of nature and culture, is sort of notions of temporality. And one of the things we notice about catastrophe, which is very different to disasters, is that catastrophes have this sort of strange temporality going on in the sense that they never really end. And I suppose this is something we can talk about a bit later. But they sort of, they, they're slow and they're protracted. And for us, one of the main examples of this would be the Chernobyl catastrophe, which it's always ongoing. It's never it's a, it's an ongoing catastrophe. The effects of it are still being felt today, completely, you know, changed, changed that area and obviously had, had global impacts as well. So for us, there's this weird temporality, the way things linger, particularly in, in, in that regard. Uh, and I think there's some sporting examples we can talk about a bit later with regards to that. 
And then finally, there's no ontological insurance with a catastrophe. And I think, again, this is what we're referring to there, where we're referring to the interconnection of all these different aspects. They redefine catastrophes. They redefine what it is we know about reality and therefore how we relate to reality as well. So for us, we were sort of thinking about catastrophe and disaster. And obviously, we were centering catastrophe more because we felt as if we are living at a time where catastrophes call it an age of catastrophe or at least where there seems to be an unending role you know an unending number of catastrophes or at least this sort of age of catastrophe where we sort of just move from one to the other yeah so that's one thing we sort of we tried to do in the introduction chapter was sort of make those distinctions clear and and then see about then start to think about how sport relates to this obviously following on the example that Jim drew upon yeah it's a really look it's a very successful distinction i think and you know it's it's a book that's arrived at the right moment given you know what we've been through in recent years and you also used the word weird in your answer now you've also the the opening chapter and i I am focusing on this because it's often a way of framing what follows you describe catastrophes having an air of the weird and the eerie now why is it significant so i'll take that and i'm sure jack's got some thoughts on this as well brett Both Jack and I were uh, massively inspired by the work of the late Mark Fisher in this book. Um, And we've always wanted to find a way of um, uh, utilizing some of his work in in some of our own writing and also giving it empirical significance because much of what has been um, adapted from Fisher's work has been deeply kind of abstract and philosophical. Uh, philosophical and uh, just to give a practical example here this was something that speaks to my own experience of mountain biking so one of the biggest conflicts in mountain biking as some of your listeners may or may not know is around the use of natural spaces and the natural environment and in the uk we have land that is owned by the forestry commission for example where there's lots of conflict over whether mountain bikers should or should not be in these spaces and it always strikes me as quite weird to use Fisher's term, that we quibble about, you know, mountain bikers disrupting bird life, plant life, eroding landscapes. And then I and I will ride in these spaces in these in these forests. And then at, at various points in time, because Forestry Commission land is a mass tree factory, essentially, where they grow trees to um, produce paper and other other kinds of uh, products, they'll harvest you know, a square mile of this forest, and it will lead to complete decimation. And when I go back there, my overriding thought is one of the weird, which is defined by Mark Fisher as a place where something exists where there shouldn't be something. Um, And it's also quite eerie at times. So if I go there and there's no trees... Uh, it's eerie because there is, you know, there's there's nothing there where there should be something. There there should be trees there. There should be plant life. There should be birds. But the weird, by contrast, is one where there are things there that shouldn't be. And I guess a similar example in that respect would be when you find golf courses um, in deserts that uh, are completely devoid of any kind of wildlife or or nature and in inverted commas. And yet, all of a sudden, you have this um, artificial golf course that as we know, require lots of lots of water, lots of artificial fertilizers, and is very artificial. So, so the weird is is um, a feeling of something uh, being there when it shouldn't. There is presence when there should be absence, and the eerie is absence where there should be presence. Uh, and I think um, that was just something that that seems to cut across and intersect with all of the topics that the authors in the book were were writing about. Jack, did you have anything to add to that? 
Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. No, I think the distinction should, we, we're drawing there are good. Um, and, and I think I'm, I'm just going to say I, I actually think Mark Fisher's Weird in the Area is his best book. I think a lot of a lot of focus tends to focus on capitalist realism, which which is a which is a wonderful book. But I think um, we were both inspired, Jim and I, when we read Weird and Eerie, just for the examples and sort of the, the, what it evoked when we were sort of as we were going through and reading it. So just to sort of follow on the characteristics there that Jim defined, it was amazing how when we started to think about sport and physical activity, how we could think of all these different examples. Um, so I think one thing that we always think about when we talk about the weird, when we talk about the idea of, of, of there being a, either a failure of absence or a failure of presence, but it's when those things sort of come together, which I think is really interesting when we look at the weird. You get this a lot around sports mega event hosting. So when the Rio Olympics are just like a stone's throw, we use this example in the book in the introduction chapter, a stone's throw away from the favelas. Or I think there was the one, the most recent one was the was the um, was the winter Olympic Games, which were held in uh, China. And I think there was that image that got shared on Twitter where they had the um, the ski slope or the ski run. And it was like in the middle of an industrial like city and it, it was really quite weird to look at you had this sort of like wonderful olympic facility you know gorgeous white snow and whatnot whether or not it was real who knows but it was in this sort of almost like blade runner type city where it was just it looked really out of place and again i think that's one thing that sort of we were getting at there with with the weird and also then with the eerie the other example we we often draw upon is the dilapidated Olympic facilities. I think there's some, I say quite wonderful photos, but perhaps wonderful is not the right term here. But if you, you know, if you just go on Google and type in dilapidated Olympic facilities, there's really quite some shocking images here of, of, of the of the decline and, and the, the non-use of these facilities, how they're not performing their original function. I think there was one that ended up being during the 90s where there was a there was a medal stage that became a execution site during during the you know the the bosnian the, the troubles in bosnia and and and, the, and that you know that that was that's eerie that's when you know it's been taken out of its context there so yeah that was one thing we just tried to we were interested in how could we begin to just again elaborate upon what it is we mean by catastrophe and for us mark fisher's weird in the eerie was one way of of, of going about doing that which yeah which at least allowed us to explore that and I think we were there proposing, we were trying to propose new ways of perhaps approaching catastrophe, drawing upon some of the theories we enjoyed reading. Yeah, and it, look, it, it really resonates with me in the sense of part of the world I live in, like the um, tour down under cycling race going through you know, a post-bushfire landscape during the, the Black Summer bushfires, which were just horrific. You know, and the cyclists themselves making observations. But then it sort of brings us to the, I suppose, the range of perspectives that you've managed to collect through the book. It is a remarkably international book in scope. You've got evidence and case studies from the Caribbean, North America, the UK, Europe, Africa and Oceania, ATRO and New Zealand in particular. So how did you go about recruiting authors and selecting the chapters that appear in the book? Because I can imagine it was a reasonably painstaking and time intensive process. I'll start and say that if you've done, we were told edited, this was our first edited collection and we were told that they can be quite hard work. I am, you know, I'm not just saying this because it's being recorded and we're here. It was an absolute pleasure. And I think that was partly because of the, of the contributors uh, that we got. Obviously, we, you know, we put the call for papers out there. And one thing we sort of said from the start was we wanted to try and get an international reach. And you take a bit of a chance, don't you, when you put a call for papers out, you're not too sure what you're going to get. But for, for this, this just confirmed us the importance of the topic, the fact that we catastrophe was such this sort of international, uh, perhaps, you know, dare we use the term, you know, universal 
uh, concept or idea that was bringing together different different topics, different ideas, but also different areas of the world. So perhaps we were quite lucky there that we got this we got this international scope. But then it was something we you know we wanted to explore with regards to the way in which we organised it. So the contributors were brilliant, and I think that's what made it you know eat, well good good fun in that respect. But Jim. yeah, I, I would I would echo Jack's comments, uh, and, and Brett and I we we talked about this before the podcast, didn't we? About you know just how difficult I think these editor collections can be sometimes, and it's fair to say that the contributors genuinely the contributors to this collection made this a, a relatively easy job and it was a pleasure to, to deal with them all and i guess it's it's normal to feel proud of a piece of work that you've produced but i am genuinely proud of what we produced here i, th I think all of the authors have created something uh, inspiring and, and imaginative and, and, and innovative and, and what there were two things i liked about the collection once it was finished one was that it appeared to me that we all worked through this idea together as we were writing our own respective chapters uh, and the whole book kind of emerged through the process of collecting it if that makes sense because i think none of us had really dealt with this idea of catastrophe before jack and i included i mean we've written about this since but we'd never really worked with this concept and conceptualized catastrophe before so the book was a nice opportunity to think think through some ideas that clearly for many of the contributors ourselves included were bubbling beneath the surface but had never quite come to fruition uh, and the second related thing which speaks to you know the way in which we've located the book is catastrophe is clearly something that is of, of global significance and these respective catastrophes though the effects of which can be isolated in particular times temporalities and places and locate locations and contexts also and at the same time have global impacts and and the two can't be separated now you know we on that we drew on um streco horvats after the apocalypse as well as well as other many really important books and, and articles but he talks about he used this idea of um eschatological tipping points which is essentially um, it's an idea that comes from climate science, which suggests that, you know, these things are so interrelated now, climate change, pollution, colonialism, and so on, and, and COVID, that you can't separate them. So I, I just find that interesting. I think that hopefully is manifest in the final collection. I was interested, in, I mentioned in the introduction, the four sections. It was kind of an interesting I think I might use the word tonal contrast, you know, like it's in a lot of ways, uh, I found it, you know, having spent most of my career writing deeply critical sort of pieces of analysis that, you know, sometimes just disappears into a void and changes very little, um, you know, that you've actually produced quite a productive, uh, sort of a hopeful book in a lot of ways, you know, the different sport and physical activity in the mate. mate but tonally, when I was looking at the contents, for the first time, you know, I saw, you know, the end of capitalism, the end of the social, the end of nature, and the end. I was like, in the end, I was thinking, "Whoa, what's about to happen here?" Um, so, you know, this, how do these sort of things fit together in your mind? Because it, it does make for a really um, engaging read at that level. So again, I think we were obviously we so we got we got all we got the chapters and we could see the sort of the international scope there. But then we were sort of starting to think about how best to obviously organise them as part of the collection. And I think following on from what we were talking there about the way in which we approach the distinction between catastrophe and disaster, and then how we were looking about uh, looking at how catastrophes are related to obviously Fisher's notion there of the weird and the eerie. 
the sort of final sort of piece to that was this sort of the notion of the end. So so if catastrophes are this um, no return to normal, this sort of massive, slow, protracted or, or, or interruption of something that changes the social fabric, can they end? And for us, this notion of the end was a, it was a really interesting concept. I'm it's I'm quite interested in it for, for notions of temporality. But one of the things we noticed when we thought about the end was how it's often been there, particularly in different theoretical perspectives. So, for instance, there's, you know, perhaps the most note, the famous one would be Fukuyama's The End of History. Uh, but what's quite interesting to that is that it's sort of it's an end that never ends. I mean, it's sort of if, if it ends, well, then how can it ever be an end when we just now live in this constant end? So we were quite interested in, in, in what that said about said about that but also the way in which ends can be quite reassuring i think there's something that um which we perhaps wanted to move away from this idea that when we were talking about you know a catastrophe perhaps wouldn't be a bad thing type you know because we'd have to stop doing what we're currently doing that sort of thing and that you know that makes you start to think a bit a bit strange about this i always think that sort of you know if someone was to say to you the world would end tomorrow for you that would be that would be awful. But if you someone's to say, but it's going to end for everyone, the world will end tomorrow, you'd be a bit like, well, okay, cool, sorted, right, what are we doing then? It wouldn't feel so bad. So there's this, there's this really quite macabre reassuringness to the end, which I thought, again, was quite interesting. But for us, what we wanted to do was we wanted to bring it back to end, end and catastrophe. If catastrophe is this rupture, well, then what does the end do? For us, the end allows us to redefine what it is that we're losing. And this is something we drew upon. We're quite heavily influenced here by the work of Alenka Shupanjik. And what we're interested in here is what does the end do that makes us question what it is that we're meant to be losing? And this is the one way we wanted to therefore organise the book. So when we talk about the end of capitalism, the end of the social, the end of nature and the end of morality, obviously we're not talking about those things ended because clearly they haven't. But what we are doing is we are in a period where capitalism, the social nature and morality can be redefined and reimagined through the context of sport and physical activity. Yeah. So it, it, it was funny when, when, I, when we were writing this introduction, I was reminded of uh, the reaction to Jean Baudrillard, the late bon John Baudrillard's work. Um, if you remember when he was talking about hyperreality and then the Matrix came out and people were reading his work who, who, were, who weren't au fait with with his work to that point and they were going come on john you know we're not living in a in a world beyond the real that's ridiculous and then i think the matrix came out and then that just reinforced that idea in in uh in people's heads that he was talking about this mediated hyper real world beyond the one that we actually live in and, and I, I was having a similar experience there writing the introduction because i knew there might be people reading that thinking jack jim come on the world hasn't come to an end experientially that's ridiculous but that's not what we're saying here we're saying that ontologically epistemologically there is no doubt now in in our mind that we have we have reached a tipping point sociologically and philosophically that we can't return from and that can be an experience that is uh, filled with anxiety and worry and that's of course manifesting a lot of people's experience now of living in the world we live in but there are there are as jack mentioned ways of um seeing that optimistically because everybody can, I'm sure, identify things about the world pre-COVID, pre-natural disaster, pre-moral uh, dilemma that they might not have liked. And maybe this is an opportunity to kind of overcome some of those problems and reimagine a world that, that can help us to improve on, on various things, you know, social relations, inequalities, uh, and so on. Look, and it's as I say, as you've sort of moved through the book, it, that initial tonal thing, of course, is with, with the end becomes new beginnings. And, you know, like 
to be blunt, the end of capitalism wouldn't particularly upset me. As I say, in the way you've organised the book works really well. Shifting focus just slightly. There are various forms of social structures, processes, inequalities threaded throughout the collection. But Jack, you're the the research lead for the anti-racism research group at Sheffield Hallam. So what what does that involve in terms of being the lead and how does your, you know, how does it connect with your work on, you know, online hate in particular? Yeah, no, yeah, no, thanks for asking that. So um, uh, primarily, I think what the research centre, I was working at a university that um, structurally is quite separated. And one thing we were becoming very aware of was that there was lots of work being done across the university on issues of anti-racism. So I think the group itself was a way of starting to join those that research together, but also those scholars together as well. So I think that was sort of internally one of the reasons why we, we wanted to work on that uh, at Sheffield Hallam. As you mentioned, there, I'm also working on issues of online hate. Um, so what, um, this is part of a, another project that we're working on, uh, looking at online hate during football uh, tournaments. Um, so that's looking at really how um, uh, digital media, particularly uh, social media websites, have become this sort of uh, this site really for projecting forms of racism, sexism, homophobia, uh, and how that's often being directed both at players, but also journalists and other fans as well. So that was that was one interest, was another, sort of, another interest I'm sort of uh, working on there. But I think all this has sort of come together, really. And it was interesting doing this interview and reflecting back on, on the collection. Most of this research comes under, re- you know, the research I've been doing on, on anti-racism and, and, and race and racism in particular. And whereas my previous research has tried to explore issues of comedy and political correctness with regards to racism and race, um, what I've really sort of been interested on is is notions of of psychosis and how that's related to how it is we approach issues of race and racism, uh, drawing heavily there from the work of of Jacques Lacan. But one of the things I've tried to do, and that's a current current book that I'm um, I'm just about to I'm just finishing at the minute, and one of the things that sort of stood out is this notion of temporality. And, and one of the things I've tried to do in that collection is I've tried to return to this notion of, of post-race. Now, now, what is it that we mean by post-race? Um, obviously, this idea that we are beyond racism is, is a nonsense. Clearly, that's not the case. Uh, but drawing upon the work here of Paul Gilroy, and particularly his, 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 his work against race, is I do think we can be a bit contentious about this notion of post-race and particularly start to trouble what it is we mean by the post and therefore what it is we mean by race. And that was where I think I saw this connection with this collection, the same way we were trying to draw upon the notions of the end, how I was trying to draw upon here notions of retroactivity and about how temporality, our notion of temporality can be redefined, not just in our thinking about particular concepts, but also the practicing of those concepts um so that's something that i've been doing in the current project is i've trying to be, use that notion of, of, of temporality and, and retroactivity and use it as a way of pushing a sort of not necessarily a post-race agenda but using post-race as a contentious term that allows us to stop and redefine what it is we actually mean by race okay and how we actually relate to uh, notions of race and therefore race relations as well so that's sort of i think that's one way i've sort of seen the bridge between these these two what may seem as very separate projects theoretically i'm sort of interested in how they can be brought together and align over those over an issue such as time and temporality no and look and you know, it's something that comes through in the book i mean anyone listening to this will pick up that you, you you know you're both quite sophisticated in the way you think about and use theory but the thing that stands out in the chapters is also quite an accessible book it's a sort of work that 
you know, you can read at a couple of different levels. And it's certainly the sort of work I was, I'm not sure I've lived up to the people who trained me in that in trying to do that sort of work, but, you know, one always keeps trying. So, and I think that's the other thing around some of the public facing work that's connected to this. Now, Jim, you've published pieces in the conversation on mountain biking and, and nature and the environment, and you're also an active mountain biker. Now, you're involved in something called, and I'm sorry, we, we've got, literally got listeners from different parts of the world, but something called the Peak District MTB, which is a mountain biking advocacy group. What does that group do and how does it inform your research? Oh, well, I'm, I'm glad you asked, Brett. Yeah, that's um, something I'm I'm particularly passionate about. I guess, uh, I mean, I joined Peak District MTB a few years ago now, and um, the reason I did so is because I felt like mountain biking is at a point in the UK at least, but I think this is also the case globally, where you know there's lots of conflict, there's lots of negative perception, there's lots of stereotypes about mountain bikers, but there's a, there's not really a great there's not really a great deal of evidence regarding what mountain bikers are, why they do what they do, what their motivations for riding are, where they ride, uh, and so on and so forth. The reason I joined the Peak District MTB was to try and use my research and the evidence that I collect to make a difference in the real world, as it were, you know, to try and influence policy and advocacy and um, help an advocacy group to understand and position mountain bikers as a user group. So Peak District MTB uh, is a group that, um, broadly speaking, is there to advocate on behalf of mountain bikers, stick up for them, as it were, to, to, uh, to maintain spaces that are already there, but also to try and um, open up access to, uh, in this case, the Peak District National Park, which is in the north of, of the UK. A very, very small percentage of the land in the Peak District is dedicated to bridleways, which are rights of way that allow mountain bikers or any off-road cyclists to ride outdoors. So, so we're trying to improve that. As you might have guessed, you know, some of the work that Jack and I have been doing over the last couple of years on trail builders, uh, electric mountain bikers, and so on, it has been really useful in influencing those conversations because, you know, I, I am also very critical of the way uh, some mountain bikers act. Um, not all mountain bikers are responsible people who treat the outdoors with the respect that it deserves, but the vast majority of them are. And I use the evidence that we've collected to to kind of make sure that those stereotypes are um, treated with a d degree of contempt and are questioned and that we're critical of those stereotypes that, whilst drawing on evidence to, to, you know, to, to justify that. Now, I usually ask guests to nominate a book that they think our listeners should read. And I'm, I'm actually going to be slightly rude and presumptuous, and I'm going to answer the question for you. It's called Sport and Physical Activity in Catastrophic Environments, and it was published by Routledge in 2022. Everyone should get hold of the copy, please. Instead, I'm going to ask uh, Jim and Jack about, you know, what are you working on next? Where does the book lead to? Or what, what, what sort of things that you're working on that we can look forward to in the next couple of years? I can start with that, Brett. So for the past um, five or six years, Jack and I have been uh, have been working on what might be broadly described as, as nature sport. And in the past, I guess, what we've been focusing on mostly are, as per the um, biography that you read out of mine earlier, we're looking at the materialization of nature. So we start with the premise that na nature, if it ever did, no longer exists objectively anymore. It's something that's, uh, you know, we've got these socio-natures now that show there's a connection between sociality and the way nature is constructed. We've got material natures, 
which is ev evident in some of the fantastic work being done by uh, scholars like Clifton Evers, Holly Thorpe, Belinda Wheaton, who I know you've also had on the podcast. So that's been really influential in our thinking, and it's allowed us to position mountain bikers and mountain bike trail builders within some of those debates. What we're starting to shift our emphasis towards now, because this is something that comes up time and time again in conversation about mountain bikers and increasingly electric mountain bikers, is how the technology becomes a conduit for conflict, but also how the technology is a really important part of mountain bikers, especially electronic mountain bikers, identity. And I guess that the main conflict there is around whether technology should be present, you know, going back to the weird and the eerie, is whether technology dilutes our experience of nature. And that intersection is fascinating for us, because there are some scholars whose work we're increasingly drawing upon. So uh, Bernard Stiegler, uh, for example, who would argue that technology is a constituent part of our humanity and therefore should be given more consideration, even in those spaces that might seem natural or wild. You know, since we started moving on two feet and, and walking upright, we have been using utensils and technologies to help us to live. So his argument would be that technology is, is, a, is necessarily a part of our humanity. And I think that's fascinating from the perspective of you know, looking at mountain bikers, because you could make the case, as I have done in recent work of, of mine, that that makes mountain bikers more connected to, in inverted commas, natural environments than other, other user groups because they necessarily take responsibility for the technology that they're using in those natural spaces and understand some of the, the grey areas between what is natural and what is technological. So, um, yeah, we're starting to move in the direction of uh, emphasising the, the technological a bit more, the mountain bike and the e-mountain bike as an object and how that facilitates certain forms of, of attachment from mountain bikers because they become attuned to the, the bikes, their bodies move in tandem with the technology. Um, increasing with electronic bikes, you have to kind of manage the battery and uh, how you move around landscapes, make sure you're not getting caught out in wild spaces and therefore being irresponsible. There's a whole range of different things in the same way that, you know, Jack was talking about race being a um, football and, and online hate being a platform for lots of other discussions. I think the technological orientation of mountain bikers and other nature, nature sports enthusiasts becomes a similar platform because we're talking there about ethics. We're talking about the confluence of nature and culture. We're talking about conflict in outdoor spaces. And then you've got interrelated things like, you know, discussions about health and well-being and um, and the politics of sport and, and outdoor activity. So, yeah, that that's I don't know if you've got anything to add to that, Jack. No, no, no I think I think you've done a, a great way of summarizing what we're working on there. I, I would just add that. And I suppose the inspiration that sits behind that is you know, the, the, the theories, the ideas and the concepts that we're using as part of that. Obviously, Jim there, you know, mentioned Bernard Stiegler, which is something that um, sort of we both enjoyed reading. And I think we've seen some nice connections there with more sort of psychoanalytic theory as well. So we're hoping that apart from the very sort of practical elements there that Jim did a, a great job of outlining, There'll also be some nice, you know, some nice ideas, you know, some nice theoretical concepts as well that we'll be able to draw upon and, and elaborate upon as part of that work. I look forward to reading it. And I just look, thank you both for your time. Good luck with your teaching and research and um, stay safe on the trails, Jim. Thanks, Brett. Yes, thanks, Brett. Thanks for having us.